Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast of La Trobe Asia, where we discuss the news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. After hundreds of years of occupation and a bloody struggle for independence, Timor-Leste formed a democratic government in 2002, running its election under the watchful eye of the UN. It has since had three highly competitive elections, which have been widely recognised as free and fair. Here to discuss how well the democracy is functioning and to highlight the possible cracks in the facade is Dr. Rebecca Strating, lecturer in politics at La Trobe University. Thank you for joining me, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. So uh, there's kind of an inherent danger in well-meaning global bodies like the UN wading in and saying to somebody, you've had a lot of hell go on, now you should become a democracy, follow this blueprint, it's nice and fair, regardless of whether you're ready for it or not. We've seen that play out kind of sketchily in different countries. So uh, Nepal yeah. hasn't fared entirely well. It's got a democracy. It's struggling with it. How's Timor-Leste faring? Uh, yeah, I think that there are some inherent risks uh, in international bodies like the United Nations trying to establish uh, democratic state institution in post-conflict societies uh, and in societies that don't actually have much experience with democratic governance. Democracies generally require or are supported by a political culture where citizens and elites understand the rules of the game, that understand what the nature of democracy and and democratic outcomes are and support democratic visions and values and aspirations. So, you know, democracy requires a certain political culture, uh, orientations, attitudes, beliefs and values among ordinary citizens as well as a political elite. And that's something that can't just be generated from the outside. Mm -hmm. That's really a kind of grassroots process uh, and it needs to be embedded within the leadership as well. It's a generalisation for me to say this, but it's more prone to corruption, to favouritism being shown to different people. That- Certainly take where, where Timor was before 2002. Uh, you know, this was a state that was colonised originally by Portugal uh, and then it was invaded by uh, Indonesia in 1975. Over the 24 years of the Indonesian occupation, which was a, a dictatorship under the Suharto regime, there are all of those sorts of cultural um, dimensions that get embedded within Timor's mm. uh, political, social and economic realm. So things like patronage and clientelism create an environment uh, within which corruption can flourish or bad governance can flourish. You know, these are the sorts of structures that are in place in addition to traditional institutions around power and around legitimacy. So when the United Nations went into Timor-Leste after the 99 referendum, uh, to build institutions, they weren't doing that on a blank slate. You know, there are all of these uh, institutions that are already in place, attitudes, beliefs around power and legitimacy that are in place. And the creation of structures can't just displace those existing beliefs or those existing practices or ways of doing things. Mm. It's not that simple. And of course, the other issue with Timor uh, 
last day's transition is about whether or not people were actually sufficiently involved in the process, uh, whether there was sufficient self-determination or local participation that would enable a kind of democratic political culture to flourish. So when we think about the success or the failure of Timor's political transition, it's a very complex question and it's a really complex set of dynamics that are at play because Timor's transition really involved multiple transitions. It became an independent sovereign state which requires building all of these political institutions, courts, police, military. It requires building a constitution, parliament, government. There are all of these different arms of the state that need to be established in order to create political order within the boundaries of the, of the sovereign state. But at the same time, it had to undergo a process of democratisation. So it's not just about building a state, it's about building a democratic state with elections, with a constitution that consolidates the rights and freedoms of people. These are very complex and difficult processes. And so I think that if we look at where Timor-Leste started, at 1999, after the referendum, experts have estimated that around six 60 to 80% of buildings in Timor were raised under the scorched earth policy. There wasn't a lot of experience with self-government. You still had groups who were pro-autonomy, who were pro-Indonesian. So you've got all of these different things going on. Now, the project or the task of building institutions in that context was immense. Like it's, a, it's an incredible project. The fact that Timor is a functioning, independent, democratic, uh, at least at an institutional level, a democratic state is really remarkable. Mm-hmm. So is it something that the UN provided enough support for? They can give the blueprint for it. They can give advice, yep. but there's a certain level where you've just got to go, okay, okay, off you go. And there are so many tensions imbued in this in this process of yeah. um, of having an international body creating institutions on behalf of a society. And so the UN mission, UNTIET, the United Nations Transition Administration in East Timor, as it was called, was in Timor for over two years and it was the most comprehensive, unprecedented mission that has ever taken place under the auspices of the United Nations in terms of state building. Mm. It was bigger than Cambodia, for example. It was bigger than Kosovo. And it was really the high watermark of UN state building. After Timor, there tended to be a preference for a lighter footprint approach. So this is the kind of the apex in terms of money spent, resources allocated, time, and just the sheer nature of the intervention and all of the the things that the United Nations mission had to do in order to prepare Timor-Leste for independent government. It was actually Timorese political leaders, particularly Janana Guzmao, who was a former independence leader who wanted the United Nations mission to leave after a certain amount of time. Mm. You know, the Timorese leaders, uh, a number of themselves, were demanding more participation and actually wanted 
to begin the process of self-government. So it's a house guest that found its way onto the cleaning roster somehow. Uh, well, maybe you could put it like that. Yeah. Yeah. So in the time since then, uh, democracy went quite well in, in Timor as well as it could be expected. I mean, it's a it's a massive job to undertake. Yeah. Where's the cracks in the facade that have, that have cropped up recently? There have been a number of positive signs for, for Timorese democracy. Uh, you mentioned in your introduction three sets of free and fair elections, mm. parliamentary and president. For those who observe democracy, that's really important litmus test. But there's a difference between democratic transition and democratic consolidation. So whether or not that has actually transformed into a sustainable and enduring democracy or whether there's, you know, continuing risks that it might return back to more authoritarian or even more traditional forms of of governance. Mm -hmm. As an observer of democracy and of democratisation, I think some of the things that have concerned me about Timor-Leste's democracy are some of the steps that have been taken to try and minimise opposition and dissent within Timor. So, for example, in 2014, uh, a number of foreign judges were sacked by Timor-Leste's parliament. The foreign judges didn't find in Timor's favour, so they were sacked. Uh, which is a level of interference in the justice system that shouldn't really exist in a strong democratic state. In 2014 also the National Parliament passed a, a bill that sought to limit freedom of press So this was the Media Act. It sought to control who could become a journalist. It sought to make sure that journalists had to be a part of this press council and just generally an attempt to kind of monitor the press. That's also a kind of worrying sign. The other key issue has been with power transition. So in 2015, Janana Guzman resigned as Prime Minister and he anointed a successor, Dr. Rui Arujo, who is from the opposition party, Fretlin. And so they cobbled together a cabinet that had basically members of nearly all of Timor-Leste's political parties, yeah. which is pretty astounding. What the Timorese politicians have argued is that this is a style of consensus democracy that is better suited to a post-conflict democratising context. On the other hand, it points to the fact that there's little ideological difference between elites, uh, restriction of opposition, and when politicians put aside partisan interests in order to advance national interests. As an observer of democracy, I go, but are you really advancing national interests or are you advancing your own personal and political interests? The real concern is that it's about consolidating the power of the political elite at the expense of ordinary Timorese citizens. I mean, it's a really interesting situation. There is effectively no opposition now, is there? Well, no. And yeah. and so what that does is undermine uh, one of the critical functions of a legislature, which is oversight and scrutiny mm. of legislation. If you don't have a proper opposition, it's difficult to establish the conditions for properly debating and scrutinising the laws that are passed. And if you couple that with a decline in civil society activism and if you couple that with increased restrictions on press, you start to see that there are 
problems or challenges that are emerging in in Timor-Leste's fledgling democracy. In some ways, it sounds like, you know, if if this was a dictatorship, you'd say, yeah, this is all kind of business as usual. But it's, it's not. It's still calling itself a democracy. And in some ways, I can see where they're coming from. The less that we're fighting amongst each other, the more effective that we're going to be. Look, we're united and we're doing it for Timor-Leste's future. Mm. One of the things that I've observed over a number of years of researching on Timor-Leste is the capacity for Timorese elites to generate a compelling narrative. My suspicion is that years spent in the independence movement trying to convince the international community that Timor-Leste should be an independent state mm. gives them a great narrative toolbox for using the vernacular, if you like, of Western liberal democracy to its advantage. Yeah. Uh, and so, yes, it, it is a, it's a compelling idea that in post-conflict uh, society, it's better for elites to get along than it is for them to fight. But democracy is about conflict resolution. Democracy is not about eradicating dissent. It's about accommodating diversity and pluralism and difference within a peaceful framework so that, you know, violence doesn't break out. It doesn't mean that everybody should just get along and <laughs> that's really not what the, the democratic project is about. This is a backsliding for the concept of democracy, whether it is or not the government that Timor Less needs. Is this the sort of thing that can further evolve into a dictatorship? Um. Possibly. An interesting question. There has been this fear about what would happen when, say, Gujmao stepped down because in terms of political leadership, it's kind of a fusion of what we call rational legal authority. So that's the sort of authority that somebody gets to make decisions if they attain a particular office. So fusion of this kind of authority with charismatic authority. That idea that uh, for Gujmao, his authority comes from his role as an independence mm. leader. So there's this fusion of these two types of authority that don't really sit all that well together. Democracy's authority comes from the rational legal aspect and yet Gujmao, for example, he's still deeply embedded. When he resigned as Prime Minister, he created Gordon Peake describes it as a super ministry. It is the Ministry of Planning and Strategic Investment, which basically has oversight of the allocation of state resources to various infrastructure projects. Now, I've been doing a lot of research on the Timor Sea dispute and the sorts of political economy influences on Timor-Leste's foreign policy approach. And one of the things that I've found is that the Timorese government, first under Gujmao and now under Prime Minister Arujo, have very ambitious plans for development. Mm. And they include creating a petrochemical refining industry on the south coast of Timor-Leste, which would require creating an export pipeline from one of the contested oil fields in the Timor Sea. Uh, so that's getting a little bit off topic, but my point is is that there are big plans afoot and they're already in motion for spending a considerable amount of money 
it's not just the Tasimane project, which is the petrochemical industries, but there are other national infrastructure plans that involve considerable amounts of money. And there's quite a, a, a bit of criticism about whether or not these are going to be effective. From what I've read, commentators tend to see these as being white elephants. These are big projects that will probably not provide a great deal for ordinary Timorese citizens. And if we couple that with a culture that permits clientelism, patronage, corruption, a lack of oversight, there's a number of risks around developing these white elephants. Mm. But this is a sort of central plank to Timor-Leste's strategic development plan and so we can see that Guzmao is maintaining control over that space. Yeah, yeah, very much a position of power he created for himself. I mean, regardless of whether he remained as a minister, I think he would still have authority. You know, there's a difference between formal and informal sites of of power. There were suggestions, for example, before Gushmao resigned that they might create like a, a council of elders that would kind of sit outside of the formal structures of political power and representation, in theory, oversee this generational transition of leadership. But to me, again, alarm bells go off. So regardless of whether or not Gushmao has a role in, a formal role in Cabinet, he was always going to maintain his power and influence, I would argue. All right, we can look forward to more interesting developments from Timor Leste in the future. Thanks for your time, Dr. Strating. Thanks, Matt. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast of La Trobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it on iTunes and SoundCloud. You can follow Dr. Rebecca Strating on Twitter. She's at Beck Strating. And you can follow myself. I'm at Nightlight Guy. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.